this is Chapter One of Prairie Song, a Card Zero Press production. John had been walking for ten days. There had been a sign with the Nevada colors a ways back, blue and orange with the mark of crossed sagebrush. So either John had crossed the state line already, or he would soon. Either way, the pack on his back felt weightless, less than weightless, buoyant. Tired as he was, John thought he just might drift off into the sky. He was finally free of Oregon and of Chokecherry. Dust sprang up under every footstep, as if the road itself was trying to echo his lifted spirits. John paused to take a drink from the half-empty tin canteen in his pack and stared down the road. The stretch he'd been walking was mostly flat, but there were a few hills in the near distance. The road was new, carved fresh by carts, bikes, and the occasional car. Sooner or later it would end in a farming town not unlike Chokecherry and then John would have to find another road. He returned the canteen to his pack. He had to keep walking before the euphoria wore too thin, and he started to feel his feet. As John reached the base of the first low hill, a bike wobbled into view. A motorcycle. Its rider was silhouetted in front of the sun, as the bike kicked up rolling clouds of dust and advanced down the hill. John stood off to the side of the road. He averted his eyes and waited for the rider to pass. It wasn't wise to make eye contact with strangers. That was the way to get robbed, or killed, or kidnapped and indentured to a ganglord in payment of someone else's debt. The bike's approach was slow. The machine ambled down the hill like a mule carrying a child rider. It couldn't have been going more than fifteen miles per hour. Strange. John let his curiosity win and watched. The bike wasn't gentle, after all. It moved like an unbroken horse trying to pitch its rider with every erratic wobble. John squinted, trying to get a better look. The rider was doubled over, one hand on the handlebars, the other clutched tightly against his stomach. It looked like muscle memory alone was keeping him upright. Another wobble, and the bike veered dramatically off course. Suddenly, John was lying on his back in the tall grass. The front tire of the bike spun in the air. John sat up. He felt a bruise forming, not where the bike had hit him, but where he had fallen on a fist-sized rock. He would find more bruises later. John looked for the rider, who lay half in the road a few feet away. The rider had dark brown hair, a brown face half covered by green-tinted goggles, and a large, sharp nose. He dressed in a poncho, just a little too big for him. He could have been one of John's neighbors, just another farmer. The only outlandish thing about him was the guitar strapped to his back. You didn't come across many of those, and usually not on the persons of half-dead travelers lying in the road. The body of the guitar still hummed with the shock of striking the ground. Then John saw it. The rider's right hand was missing two fingers. What John had mistaken for an unusual pattern on his poncho was actually splotches of blood, both fresh and dried. The rider's right arm was soaked with it, John found, as he hesitantly touched the skin of the man's wrist. John sucked in a breath. This man had run across real bad trouble. John spared the hills above them a wary look. Wherever this man had come from, he hadn't come away whole and he couldn't have come far in the shape he was in. John considered the motorcycle. It was still running, rumbling at him. 
He had the cattle rancher's urge to help the bike to its feet, brush the dust out of its coat, and send it on its way. John hadn't seen a motorcycle up close before, and he was half afraid the thing was wild, that it might right itself and bite him. He considered as he stroked his hand down the motorcycle's grumbling flank, stealing the bike. John would get much farther on its back than on foot. But the rider wasn't going to make it if John left him on a sparsely traveled road like this one. Chances were, whatever trouble the other man was running from wasn't far behind him. John righted the motorcycle with some effort, afraid of the engine, but unsure how to turn it off. If he did turn it off, he'd never get the bike to turn on again anyway. The bike wanted to fall back on its side, and John circled it until he discovered the kickstand. It was just like riding a horse, he told himself. He dragged the man out of the road by his underarms and attempted to maneuver him onto the bike, but John kept tipping it over, despite the kickstand, and struggling to right it again. The man was a ragdoll. John's confidence in being able to ride a motorcycle was depleting by the second. He knew he couldn't do it with an unconscious man thrown over the seat. Again, John considered stealing the bike and leaving the rider behind. No, he couldn't do that. He had principles. He wasn't sure what they were sometimes, until moments like this when they reared up and demanded a certain level of compassion for his fellow man. But he had them all the same. John righted the motorcycle again, after having tipped it for the fourth time. He could lash the injured man to his waist. He unshouldered his pack and dug through it for the spool of thin nylon cord he had packed. The moment his hand brushed it, he felt the thrill of adrenaline swirl in his gut. Of all the weapons John carried, rope scared him the most. He had his shotgun, his pistol, and his pocket knife, but nothing put the fear of God in him like rope. John positioned the man on the bike, and the man immediately slumped forward into the handlebars. But with a clear plan in mind, John managed to straddle the bike in front of the man and loop the rope around them both. The man started to slip off the side of the bike, and John pulled the rope taut. The knot dug into his belly button. Shit, John said. Blood spread over his canvas work pants as the man's fingerless hand came to rest against his leg. John wriggled out of his pack and got out his canteen again, resting the pack in his lap. The bike wobbled underneath him, and he took a moment to find his balance again. John poured a meager amount over the stranger's fingers, then hunted through his pack for some medical supply or other that might help but missing fingers were pretty well beyond him. He began to panic as the blood spread down his pants to his knee. He was seeing different blood, his own, someone else's. He rifled through his pack again, without really seeing any of the supplies inside. He wasn't equipped to deal with this. He couldn't handle this. Two days ago, he had passed through a town. Tiny, less a town than a trading post. He had filled up his canteen. The hills from which this man had come presented uncertainty and menace, and there was no saying what John would find beyond them. Maybe no town for days. On a motorcycle, John could make it back the way he had come before nightfall, and hopefully find some help. John closed his eyes to the sight of the blood and closed his pack again. He hoped that whatever had taken the rider's fingers wasn't better at riding a motorcycle than he was. Riding a motorcycle turned out to be nothing like riding a horse. For one thing, a horse knew how to keep itself standing upright, whereas the motorcycle needed to borrow John's balance, lacking any of its own. John and the motorcycle had many stop and starts. Every few minutes, he would stop the bike and put his feet down. He didn't really need to, he knew. He was doing all right. But it was his own fear he was up against, on top of his sense of balance. In that respect, he supposed it was something like riding a horse. Choke Cherry Cattle Ranch had the only horse in Pith, Oregon. The other farmers had donkeys, and the wealthiest among those farmers paid Mr. Thomas Clifford exorbitant shares of their corn harvests for the right to breed the Choke Cherry mare to make a mule. Before Choke Cherry was Choke Cherry, it had been the lucky piece of land located overtop an underground spring, so it had become the only farm in not only Pith, but the whole region of Oregon, with enough water to raise cattle. Chokecherry controlled the spring, 
and while water was technically free to its neighbors, Chokecherry controlled where the irrigation channels led. If you charged more than Mr. Clifford thought reasonable for your tomatoes or zucchini, well, maybe you wouldn't have water next season. People said you were lucky to work at Chokecherry. It was the only place in Pith where you could count on something to eat at supper and a cold bath in the morning. Farmhands ate at the master's table. And in John's experience, that had been true. He would have given anything to eat in the barn with the cows. Slowly, John got the hang of the bike. It wobbled, still, but he was done stopping and starting. Behind him, his passenger groaned. Waking up, then. That was probably a good sign. The knot in the rope around John's belly was so tight it took the breath out of him. Hold on, John said. He struggled to be heard over the roar of the bike. He wasn't used to using his voice, and it came out rough. The man behind him jolted upright and clutched the front of John's shirt like he had a mind to rip it to shreds. John's button-up hung open in the summer heat, and the thin, worn shirt he wore underneath wouldn't hold up if the man gripped him much harder. The bike wobbled more violently, almost tipping over. Christ, can't you drive? the man groaned. He leaned forward. The rope slacked, and John could breathe again. John chose not to answer. He wasn't eloquent in the best of circumstances, and he'd do better introducing himself when they stopped. Maybe after the man had seen a doctor. The man kept his vice grip on John's shirt for a few minutes more, then relaxed, or lost the strength to hold on any longer. Whatever the reason, he now leaned forward into John, breathing hard. John could feel him adjusting, wrapping his hand up in his poncho, to try and staunch the bleeding. "'See your name?' the man asked through gritted teeth. "'John.' "'Just John?' John didn't reply. He was supposed to ask the stranger's name. That was how this worked. He knew that. But he couldn't. He squinted up the road, willing the trading post to come into view. "'I'm Cody,' the man said. His voice was so labored, John couldn't tell if he was crying or just close. Cody Allison. Nice to meet you, John said, so low that the motor drowned him out. But Cody seemed satisfied, or he didn't press the issue, at least. Maybe he had felt the vibration in John's chest, even if he hadn't heard the words. They drove for a while, Cody whimpering with every bump in the road. Finally, the trading post came into view on the horizon. They'd be there in the next hour. There'd be a doctor there, and John could leave Cody in capable hands, and then he could consider what he was going to do next. Risk whatever was in the hills, or find a different road. There had been a northeast road heading out from the trading post. There was no real reason to travel south. John had only chosen the south road because he knew what to expect. If you went far enough east, you hit wilds. And after that, there was no telling what you would find. All John knew was he wasn't going back to Chokecherry. Cody had been in pain for so long that it was starting to get annoying. His hand was on fire. The sensible part of him knew that it had only been a handful of hours, maybe only one. But every time a wave of pain radiated from the stumps of his missing fingers up his arm, time shifted before him to stretch as vast as the desert. He couldn't see a way forward from here. Each time he lost consciousness, it was a struggle to regain it, and he felt himself getting closer to the point where he stopped waking up for good. He came to again as the bike sputtered to a stop, his chest tight with every breath he took. The man in front of him, John, unless Cody's memory was playing tricks on him, climbed off unsteadily, lifting his leg a little too high, like he was dismounting a horse instead of a motorbike. Without the support of another body in front of him, Cody had to hold himself upright. It was too hard. He slumped forwards onto the handlebars, cradling his wounded hand to his chest. His head felt like it was made of lead, but he slowly turned it to look towards John. Cody squinted watering eyes against the sun and saw that they were at some kind of filling station a dusty old building surrounded by nothing but desert and open road on all sides. Maybe John was planning on dumping him like the dead weight he was and stealing his bike. Or he had to take a leak, but he could have done that anywhere on the side of the road. Why'd you stop? 
he asked. His voice was hoarse and scratched against the walls of his throat. Need your money, John said, his voice even and quiet. So it was highway robbery. John hadn't pulled a gun on him or a knife or anything, but why would he need one? Cody was hurting so badly he couldn't think straight, much less fight back. In there, Cody said, gesturing weakly to the guitar case strapped to the back of his bike. Front pocket, with the zipper. John nodded and made a soft grunting sound, stepping out of Cody's line of sight. Cody felt the bike shudder, the guitar case shifting. He heard the zipper of the front pocket groan its way open, then the gentle sound of coins bouncing down into the dirt, and John swearing under his breath, which made Cody smile to himself. If John was going to steal from him, at least he'd be picking coins up out of the dirt. And then John was gone. His footsteps receded, until eventually Cody couldn't hear them over the sound of his own pulse pumping in his ears. Strange that John would take his money, but not his bike. Maybe he had another bike, or even a car, stashed somewhere around the back of the gas station. Or someone waiting nearby to pick him up. There might have been any number of reasons John could afford to walk off and leave Cody to die out here in the sun. Or, a traitorous voice in Cody's head said, he stole your money to buy gas at the rest stop, and he's coming back to kill you. Or take you back to Ethan. That, too, made sense. Every option his pain-adled mind came up with made a certain kind of sense, and Cody could only see one way out of this that didn't end in his death. He was going to have to start the bike and ride it away from here. Not that it had gone well the last time he'd tried that strategy, but he'd made it out of town and away from Ethan at least, before he had passed out and crashed. Maybe this time he would make it a little farther. Cody reached down instinctively to twist the key in the ignition and swore. No key. John had taken it. That meant he was coming back, and he hadn't wanted Cody to ride off while he was gone. Cody was going to have to walk. He lifted his leg to dismount the bike, and his body suddenly felt heavy, like he was moving through water. The ground tilted under his feet, his knees weak, and Cody grabbed onto the bike for support, desperately trying not to stumble backwards and pitch the whole thing over on top of him. He stood like that for a long time, what felt like an hour, before he was steady enough to start walking. It was slow going. The pain in his hand was all he could focus on, and it took a superhuman amount of effort to keep putting one foot in front of the other. The burning felt like it was in his veins, setting his whole arm on fire from the inside. Maybe it was. Cody looked at his hand, trying to determine whether it was infected, but if there was any discoloration, he couldn't see it against his dark skin. Still, the sight of the exposed pink muscle where his fingers had once been made him want to vomit. Cody stumbled. He tried to throw his hands out to save himself, but it was too late. His face hit the dirt hard, his teeth banging against his bottom lip, dust filling his lungs as he inhaled sharply in pain. Cody laid there for a long moment, trying to will himself to get up. John would come back soon and find Cody lying there, defenseless. But Cody had nothing to brace himself against. The bike was too far away now, and there was no way he could stand on his own. He dragged himself forward a few feet with his good hand, the injured one lying uselessly at his side, getting more infected with sand and road grit by the second. Footsteps approached him from behind. Cody's breath caught. He swallowed another mouthful of dust and coughed it back up, trying to drag himself forward. He couldn't do it. A pair of firm, calloused hands gripped him under the arms and yanked him upwards. It was John, dusting him off brusquely and lifting him up before Cody could find the words to protest. Don't! Cody wheezed, as John carried him back over to the bike and set him back down on it. His throat felt scratchy, his mouth coated with dirt. However much he said I'm worth, he lied. Don't kill me. John gave him a very strange look. Facing him now, Cody could see he was carrying a canister of gasoline. He walked around to the back of the bike, where Cody couldn't turn his head to look. Cody heard the soft click of the gas cap unscrewing. Not gonna kill you, John said, as though he was confused that he even had to reassure Cody of that fact. Doctors down the road a ways. Your hand needs looking at. Cody's mind raced, trying to keep up. John was taking him to a doctor. Now Cody felt guilty for trying to escape, embarrassed even for assuming the worst of John, 
You're not with Ethan? he asked. John finished gassing up the bike and set the gas can in the dirt, walking around to where Cody could see him again. Confusion was written even more plainly on his face than before, and he rubbed a hand over his mouth. Who's Ethan? he asked finally. Ethan Rouse, Cody said, labored, folding his bleeding hand towards his chest. How could he even begin to explain? He... he's... The rumbling of a bike in the distance cut him off. No, several bikes. A whole caravan of motorbikes, kicking up dust that you could see a mile off. Cody felt a chill run through him at the sight of it, and sat up a little straighter on his own bike, wincing. The pain in his hand grew as he squeezed his fingers into a fist. We have to go, he said through his teeth. Now. John blinked at him. I'm serious, Cody ground out. He gestured to John with his free hand, still watching the caravan as it drew closer. The key. Give it. No, John said, with a stubbornness that made Cody want to smack him. You can't drive. Then get on and fucking drive, Cody hissed, scooting backwards so that John could get on in front of him. It was too late. The caravan was close enough to see them now, and the bike at the front sped up, rapidly bearing down on the little gas station. It ground to a halt just feet away from John and Cody. The rider took off his helmet. He was pale, with freckles and short, coppery hair. One of his eyes was green, the other blue. It was a mutation, ordinary as far as those went, and it tended to hypnotize you. He grinned broadly, laugh lines creasing his face as the rest of the caravan began to pull up behind him. Hey, Cody, Ethan said. Who's your friend? John squinted at the grinning man. The man had ghost-white skin and features that would have been pretty if they weren't so smug. He wore black grease in a stripe across his eyes. So did the rest of his gang. Cody's motorbike was the only thing separating John from the twenty or so riders, all armed by the looks of them. John spared Cody a glance. Cody seemed to know the gang, but he was frozen in place on the back of the bike, terrified. John's forehead knit together. If Cody wouldn't take the lead, it was up to him. John considered whether he could mount the bike, turn the key, and drive away before one of the gang members shot him. Probably not. Cody hadn't said anything yet. I'm Ethan Rouse, the man at the front of the group said, addressing John. He was still smiling. It was so thoughtful of you to pick up my friend Cody. I'm going to guess he hasn't explained the situation. You see, he owes me a lot of money. And until he gets me that money... Ethan's smile widened, showing the gap between his front teeth. Cody belongs to me, or he belongs dead. John tensed. His pistol was holstered at his side, but he couldn't count on being a quicker draw than Ethan, and surely not a quicker draw than all twenty-odd members of Ethan's gang. His other gun, the shotgun, he had tied loosely to the handlebars of the bike, for easy access, and because there was nowhere else to put it. Cody belongs to you, John said, mulling over the words, nodding thoughtfully. He walked around to the other side of Cody's bike, hands in his pockets so nobody would notice the twitch in his fingers. He sat side-saddle on the bike, hoping he signaled a willingness to negotiate rather than flee. I think you've got the gist of it, Ethan said cheerfully. So, I'm thinking, in terms of a trade, if you sit right where you are and don't kick up a fuss, we don't kill you. And if you do kick up a fuss, Marguerite here will run you. John leaned over the handlebars, briefly hoped that he wasn't about to dislocate his wrist, and aimed the shotgun. In one fluid motion, he turned off the safety and fired. He didn't have time to survey the damage. His wrist stung something awful from the kickback, but it wasn't broken. He turned the key, swinging his leg around to straddle the bike. The gang was taking stock of themselves and drawing weapons. John released the clutch and squeezed the throttle, jerking the bike forward. Where? Cody said. His good hand held John around the middle, squeezing so hard John couldn't draw a full breath. John sped through the middle of the cluster of gang bikes, clearing some of them by mere inches. They couldn't shoot him through each other and if they tried, all the better for him. By the time he cleared them all, the bike was moving whip fast. 
faster than John had known a human being could go. As fast as falling. John turned the bike around in the middle of the road, spitting up a spray of dust and nearly tipping it over, so that he and Cody again faced the gang. John! Pistol, John said. Holster. Cody grabbed the pistol from John's holster. John! John pushed the bike as fast as it would go. Five of Ethan's people had guns trained on him and Cody now, waiting for a shot. Shoot the ones with guns, John said helpfully. Son of a bitch, said Cody. John had his shotgun resting on his knee now, but it didn't shoot as fast as his pistol, and the shotgun was especially slow while John was driving. He was mostly relying on Cody. Cody, who he had just met, who anyone in their right mind would have handed over to Ethan without a second thought. This was gang business. By the look of Cody's bike, he was one of them, or he used to be. You got involved with the gangs, you usually got what was coming to you, one way or another. John fired twice before he breached the line of bikes, blowing out two bikes' front tires. Not his intention, but he was aiming from his lap. He heard Cody fire twice, too. Slower, because of his fingers. Hell. But it worked again. Passing through the middle of the gang, the gang members were forced to hold their fire just long enough for John to get clear of the filling station. Cody turned around in his seat and fired the pistol twice more. It was unclear whether he hit anything. John swerved off the road. The storefront would block the gang's shots for a few brief seconds. He heard their bikes come to life and distant swearing. Cody returned the pistol to John's holster. This was where John's initial idea ended and improvisation took over. The ear-pounding rush of fleeing from danger made up for John's lack of skill with the motorbike, desperation taking the place of confidence. What had been difficult on the open road was suddenly easy as John was forced to wind around boulders and rotting stumps. He was disappointed to find the northern Nevada landscape wasn't amenable to escape. There wasn't much place to hide. John steered the bike between the trees, cutting through the forest of pines behind the filling station. The trees were far between and radiation scars made them slim and sick, and there was hardly any underbrush to speak of, which made for easy driving, at least. The trees were sparse enough that the road was still plain to see twenty feet to his left. He followed the direction of the road. There was no other choice. He could veer off and get themselves lost in unknown country, and that wasn't a choice at all. John had to let things play out, even though he was dreading the moment Ethan Rouse's gang caught up and spotted him and Cody from the road. Him and Cody would be harder to shoot between the trees, at least. The thought made the wilds tempting, but John couldn't do it. Better the gang catch them if it came down to a choice between ways to die. John hoped he and Cody had enough of a head start that it would be safe to return to the main road when they ran out of trees in a mile or so. If Ethan's gang was smart, they would let Cody keep his head start and take the opportunity to refuel their bikes at the filling station. But John got the idea that Ethan was steaming mad, and that didn't tend to make a man smart. The trees ended abruptly in a field of tall grass. John swerved back onto the road and glanced behind him. The gang was in sight. Ten riders were in pursuit. He didn't see Ethan among them. They were still a ways off. It was impossible to tell. John felt Cody's grip around his waist slacken. He hadn't had the time to tie Cody to him. If Cody passed out again and fell off the bike, the gang would catch up. Cody, stay awake. Cody's grip tightened again. I will try. John smiled to himself. He craned his neck to try to judge whether the gang was catching up, then remembered that the bike had a side mirror. They were still being followed, more closely than John would have liked. He allowed himself to check again a minute later. He couldn't tell if they were gaining. Then it occurred to him. Cody couldn't see the doctor. They couldn't stop in the waypost town for even long enough to inquire. The gang was only a minute behind, and they would see John stop. Worse, the town was the only place for miles where John might pull over, so even if John managed to lose the gang on the road, the town was the first place they would check. John didn't want to think about what would become of the little waypost in the gang's wake. There hadn't been a gang this close to Pith in a long while. Two years ago, a small-time gang, calling themselves the Pretty Things, had hit a northern town Pith had been amiable with. It had burned for days. You could even see the smoke from Chokecherry if you climbed the hill behind the main house. 
The people who survived had fled, some selling themselves into indentures just to ensure they would have something to eat that winter. John knew a few of those indentures, had been friendly with them. John's grip tightened on the handlebars. No, he couldn't stop. He would have to pass the waypost town, make sure the gang saw him pass. But then where to? He had to lose them without putting anyone else at risk. Cody's grip loosened again. John grabbed his uninjured hand, holding it to his waist firmly. He couldn't steer one-handed for long. The bike wobbled, and he let go. Stay awake, he repeated. Cody didn't say anything in reply. Shit, John muttered. They were coming up on the waypost now, about to leave behind any hope of finding a doctor. Frustration bubbled up in John as he passed the turnoff. It was time to make a decision. And then he realized where he had to go. In the past ten days, John had made steady progress on his march south. Reaching northern Nevada had felt like an accomplishment. He saw now that the journey which had taken him ten days on foot could be reversed in no more than two hours on a motorbike. As far away as the farm had seemed that morning, John had undone dozens of miles of walking in less than an afternoon. John wasn't used to moving so quickly. Watching the country speed by took the breath out of his chest, his sense of wonder curtailed only by the dread in his stomach. At this rate, in maybe half an hour, they would reach the pith track. The pith track was a dead end, leading down to the valley farms. But if John could get them onto the track without the gang noticing they'd turned, he and Cody could get down to Jess Lye's cornfield to hide. And then they would head to Choke Cherry. The farm had some medical supplies, nothing that compared to a bona fide doctor. But John would patch Cody up as best he could. He could buy him a little more time. Since they couldn't stop at the waypost, there was no telling how long it would be before they found another doctor. John spotted the head of the track up the road, marked with a wooden sign painted with the word Pith and a sign for farm. Up here it was an ear of corn. John knew the letters in Pith, and he could recognize mail from Mr. Thomas by the shape of the words, but that was all most people in Pith knew how to read. John cleared his throat a few times, trying to get his thoughts together. Cody. How do you leave marks on the road? Cody stirred behind him, half unconscious. You... break. Why? John nodded as he approached the turn for the pith track. He jerked the wheel away from the turn, toward the sparse pines that lined the other side of the road. He braked. He checked for a mark. Break hard, Cody said, gripping John more tightly. He seemed to understand what John was trying to do. It was a transparent disguise, one that would only last them a few hours at most. But it was what they had. John circled back and slammed the brakes as hard as he could. The bike threw him and Cody, tipping over just at the edge of the trees. But sure enough, John had made a deep black treadmark in the road, curving toward the tree line. John scrambled to his feet. Cody was slower to move. They had to go now, or the gang was going to round the turn two miles back and see them standing in the road. And John and Cody were in no situation to turn this into a standoff. John walked the bike back across the road with one hand, dragging Cody along with the other. They made it to the pith side of the road and ducked down behind the large wooden sign just as Ethan's gang came into view. John got out his pistol, just in case. He had hoped to get a ways down the track before the gang reached the turn. It was too late now. He didn't want them to hear the bike. John could feel Cody's labored breath on the back of his neck as they huddled close. The gang's bikes came to a stop. Shit, shit, where'd we lose them? Bootfalls approached the pith track. Whoever it was stopped just in front of the sign and traced the letters with a finger. Turn down here, do you think? Looks like farms. John squeezed himself as close as possible to Cody. They were just barely invisible behind the sign. If the gang stepped down the track to look around, they'd be seen right away. Hold on, Marguerite, said a voice from the middle of the road. The voice was reedy, with a slight lilt to it. Amused, almost. John didn't have much reference, but he would bet that voice belonged to the smug-looking man with the different colored eyes. Ethan. Cody tensed, stifling a whimper in John's shoulder. 
It raised the hairs on the back of John's neck, and he suppressed a shudder. Any sound, any shift of fabric, could bring the gang down on them. A bike revved, then slowly drove up the road and stopped again. Over here, Ethan said. Marguerite hesitated by the sign for a second longer before joining Ethan up the road. Look at the tread next to mine, Ethan said. Perfect fit. I don't see them in the trees. Of course you don't see them in the trees. They're hiding. Let's go. Bike engines sputtered to life. Soon the road was quiet. John didn't move right away. His hands were shaking as he holstered his pistol. He needed a minute. We should be dead, Cody said faintly. John got to his feet. He held out his hand for Cody, who took a little longer to write himself. Eventually, Cody gave John his good hand, and John tugged him firmly up, like Cody was an unsteady baby calf. John realized the comparison and almost dropped Cody. Wouldn't do to go thinking about an unlucky stranger like he was livestock. Easy to get attached that way. He helped Cody onto the bike and began to walk it down the pith track, going slow. Cody lay with his head on the handlebars, facing John. Sorry I couldn't get a doctor, John said tersely. There are supplies. Where we're going. It's all right. Thanks. Cody closed his eyes. John looked away, down the slope. From the top, you could see the entire expanse of the Pith Valley. Cornfields, soy, tomato, and zucchini vines, all stretched out in a beautiful patchwork that made John's skin crawl. At the bottom of the hill, John climbed on the bike in front of Cody and started it again. It would be faster this way, though no doubt he would attract attention from his neighbors. He drove along the track as fast as he could. If he didn't have time to think about what he was doing, he didn't have time to panic. The house came into view as John followed the familiar bend in the track. It was beautiful, a piece of art tucked away where nobody could find it unless they already knew where to look. It had two stories, not just an attic, but a proper second floor. Mr. Thomas had prided himself on that. And top to bottom, the house was white. Every summer, he paid the neighborhood boys to scrub away the mud and refresh the paint. The feeling the house gave John now was hard to put a name to. It wasn't normal fear. It couldn't be. There was nothing left to be afraid of. But something still creaked under John's skin, making it hard to look away until the house was behind them. The barn wasn't far from the main house. The vegetable garden lay between, as well as a soy field. The garden showed the neglect of ten days. But as John came up beside the barn, he realized that someone had been taking care of the animals. The barn doors were open, the cows out at pasture. He felt relieved of a weight he hadn't even realized he'd been carrying. John killed the bike and hopped off, walking it and Cody to the open barn doors. Inside, the barn was dark and cool, and the animal smell was oppressive. John felt hands on his body and swatted at his skin. It was only cobwebs in the doorway. Cody twisted his neck around to stare, blinking as his eyes adjusted to the dark of the barn. Are you sure we can... Whose farm is this? Used to live here, John said brusquely. He held out his hand to help Cody off the bike. Cody took it. Is there someone else here? John didn't answer. He led the bike to the corner where it would be out of the way if any cattle wandered in. He could barely think straight. He needed to get supplies for Cody from the main house. He told himself that there wasn't any threat, that it was over and done with. But as he left Cody in the barn and faced Choke Cherry alone, he felt delirious. He couldn't see what was in front of him and had to keep stopping to find his balance, to focus his eyes on the door to the main house, to force one foot in front of the other. He made it to the porch, tidy except for the thin layer of dust. John started to take off his boots. He stopped, the laces of one boot half undone. He didn't have to take off his boots. John tied the laces up again, tighter than before. The front door was unlocked, and John let himself in. His boots left brown scabs on the polished wood floor, like he knew they would. His heart leapt into his chest. His back ached in anticipation, and again he had to talk himself down. Mr. Thomas was not here. John went upstairs to find Mr. Thomas's personal medicine chest, the one in the bathroom next to his bedroom. Nobody had taken anything from the house yet. The neighbors knew what had happened if someone was taking care of the cows, but the place was intact. Maybe they were still deliberating on what was to become of the land. Farmers took land seriously. Weeks of argument lay ahead before the farm would be divided. John grabbed gauze and tape, 
clean towels and a fresh bar of soap made by Lana down the road. After a moment of consideration, he decided to take the nice porcelain pitcher that sat next to the water basin on Mr. Thomas's dresser. John didn't want to clean Cody's wounds with water from a pail. Even if the water itself came from the same well, it felt nicer to use the pitcher. John pushed open Mr. Thomas's bedroom door. Mr. Thomas lay in bed where John had left him. The shape of him under the covers at first drove John to panic, frozen in the doorway with his hands full. John stared at the unmoving form for a long while before he realized he had been mistaken. It was only pillows. They had been haphazardly thrown onto the bed, the covers thrown on top, in the chaos of removing and burying the body. Cody. John had to return to Cody. He hurried out of the main house and back to the barn, where Cody had found a bale of hay to lean against. One of the calves, thunder or lightning, John could never tell them apart in the dark, had gotten curious and was licking Cody's hair. Cody gave John a perturbed look. Back off now, that's enough. John pushed the calf gently back and sat between her and Cody. Thunder began to lick the back of John's head instead. I didn't like that, Cody said. She likes people, John replied. Whoever's letting them out to graze wouldn't stick around. They'd have their own farm to tend to. They'd be back at sundown, though. That might be a problem. John busied himself tending to Cody's severed fingers, first by scrubbing away the dried blood and grit with a towel. John's mind was miles away. If he herded the cows home himself, his neighbors would credit each other and not worry too much about it. At the end of the day, when you were sweating more than thinking, you didn't look a gift horse in the mouth. What do you mean? No one lives here? Cody said, grimacing as John cleaned his wounds. I used to live here. Now no one lives here. Oh. Cody grit his teeth while John wrung out the bloody towel. Do you mind talking to me? I think I'm going to pass out. Yes. Yes, you mind? John paused. Yes, he did mind. But Cody was lying there, sweat running down his forehead, eyes looking wild. He looked away from Cody's face. He focused on his work. I was indentured here. Mr. Thomas owned my indenture. Thunder nosed the back of John's neck. John wrung out the towel, and instead of thunder, he felt a hand, fingers wrapping forward to press his windpipe in. Just enough to scare him, not choke him. Not really. It could have been much worse. He raised me. John dropped the towel in the pitcher, not meaning to. His hands weren't doing what he wanted them to. He fished the towel back out. John didn't speak again for a long while. He lost himself in cleaning Cody's fingers working the soap into a lather and scrubbing the wound. It made Cody tense up, though he hadn't passed out yet. Behind him, Thunder nosed insistently at his shoulder, asking for affection. John didn't know how to explain Chokecherry. He had been held here. Held lovingly. Held down. John wasn't good with words. Easier not to say anything at all. John, said Cody. John wrung out the towel and wiped away the sweat on Cody's forehead. If he cooled Cody down, he might sleep. John set the towel aside and unwound a length of gauze. I killed Mr. Thomas. Nobody here now. And that was all he could say, today, to the stranger closing his eyes on the hay John had bailed ten days ago. Cody slept, though he knew they couldn't afford it. Only so much time before the Dead Eyes caught up to them again. Ethan wasn't that smart, but he knew how to get information out of people. The gang would backtrack just as soon as they lost the bike's trail in the trees and realized they'd been tricked. If someone in one of these farmhouses had seen John and Cody making their way into the barn, Ethan would know by sundown tomorrow, if not sooner. Cody pictured the competing pain and anxiety inside him like silt kicked up in a stream, a dark and gritty cloud that pervaded everything else. It wasn't lost on him that John had admitted to killing the man who'd raised him. Cody should have been more worried about that, but he didn't feel one way or the other, really. John was helping him, addressed his wounds fairly competently, and found him a place to hide. John was kind to animals. John had killed a man and then left town on foot with next to nothing. Cody was inclined to believe he had a good reason. Not like Ethan. 
Ethan had killed his own aunt to take charge of the Dead Eyes, to take something that wasn't owed to him. All of these thoughts seemed to pass Cody by in an instant as he closed his eyes, taking in the feeling of the cool, wet cloth on his face. By the time he woke, the sun was rising outside the barn. John was still sitting near him, dozing, it looked like, but he'd scooted away to afford Cody more space. That was nice. Cody tried to sit up and groaned as he accidentally put his weight on his bad hand, the pain radiating all the way up to his elbow. The stumps of his ring and pinky fingers throbbed to the beat of his pulse, the dull ache flaring up into something sharper. John, Cody said, his voice hoarse with dust from the hay he'd slept on. John didn't stir. Cody tried again, stubbornly pushing himself so that he could sit up with his back propped against the wall of the barn. John, wake up. John's eyes fluttered open and darted to meet Cody's, his eyebrows quirking up in a silent question. He looked immediately alert, as though he'd always been awake and had simply closed his eyes for a second. Cody would have believed it had John not been unresponsive just a moment ago. Where are we exactly? Cody asked, feeling in his gut that John might have mentioned it the night before, but he'd been too pain-adled to retain it. He'd lost a lot of blood. His fingers felt like maybe they'd finally scabbed over under the bandages, but he needed a doctor if he was going to heal right. That meant more debt, if Cody could even find somebody willing to lend him the money. More debt, more missed payments, more missing fingers. Pith, John said. Pith? Cody asked, tasting the name in his mouth. Pith. He knew Pith. That was in Oregon, southeast of Levering, where he and Ethan had grown up. Very southeast, closer to the state line than to Levering. Still, despite the distance, there was a chance that Ethan and the Dead Eyes would assume he'd run north for home. My bike, he said suddenly, strained, looking around for it. He'd taken most of this shitty situation in stride so far, but if John had damaged his bike or gotten rid of it... Near the door, John said quickly, maybe seeing the look in his eye. There's fuel in it still. Good, Cody said, satisfied. Hopefully his guitar had made it out in one piece, too. He pushed down the realization that he didn't have the conventional number of fingers to play it, forcing the thought into the back of his mind. He only had the energy to worry about one thing at a time right now, and that had to be Ethan. We need a plan. We? John asked, lifting his eyebrows again. Yeah, we. I can't drive my fucking bike like this. The way I figure it, you wouldn't have taken me all the way back here if you were just gonna rob me or leave me. Cody's stomach rumbled, despite also feeling nauseous. He ignored it. Ethan and the Dead Eyes. Dead Eyes? His gang. They're gonna come back here sooner or later, and Ethan knows how to get shit out of people. He'll find us. We need a plan. You need a doctor, John said pointedly. A plan and a doctor. You used to run with them, John said. Almost accusatory, but not quite. The gang. Cody frowned, but nodded. No point in lying now. Not as a member. Ethan's my best friend was my best friend, I guess. He said you belonged to him. Cody shifted and tensed a little as he pressed his hand to the ground without thinking about it. He moved it into his lap so he wouldn't make the same mistake again. Talking about what had happened between him and Ethan didn't come easy, but John had told him about killing a man. The least Cody could do was reciprocate. I borrowed money, he said. My sister was sick and I wanted to send her up to Canada. Better doctors. Ethan gave me the money for her passport as long as I repaid it before the year was out. John eyed him, studying his face. You didn't. Couldn't, Cody corrected. I've been taking on bounties up and down the coast, but it's a lot of money. Ethan can't let a debt that big slide. Can't let the dead eyes think he's weak or he gives people special treatment. He cut off your fingers. It was a warning, Cody said picking his injured hand up to study it. He could have done worse. I've seen him do worse. A warning, John repeated, disbelief coloring his words. Cody glanced back at him. Yeah, a warning. Cody didn't say that while he'd seen Ethan do worse. He'd never dreamed Ethan would take this much from him on a first warning. He was still having trouble wrapping his head around it. Two fingers gone sliced off as easily as a hot knife sliced butter. 
It was a harsh warning for a friend. But Cody owed him a lot of money, thousands in silver, and apparently all the friendship in the world wasn't enough to make Ethan extend his deadline any longer. Cody kind of understood, or at least he thought he did. He'd heard about the Dead Eyes' business from the periphery of things. He picked things up when he tagged along to their parties. Sometimes Ethan came to him. He'd loiter around Cody's sister's bar when he needed someone to listen to him complain about work. Ethan ran the Dead Eyes, but they answered to some other bigger organization, some gang that governed most other gangs. That was where some of Ethan's funding came from, including, probably, the loan he had gotten for Cody. So Cody's failure to repay meant bad standing for Ethan, steeper dues to pay to the bigger organization, maybe. Ethan looking like a bad leader, almost definitely. Cody still felt guilty about damaging Ethan's reputation, even after what Ethan had done to his fingers. He knew how hard Ethan had worked to be respected as a young gang leader, how long it had taken to recruit new dead eyes after running most of his aunt's people out of levering. Cody felt sorry that Ethan's image was being ruined by him, of all people. But then he felt bad about feeling sorry at all, about feeling anything for a friend who could take two of his fingers off without batting an eye. The way with Ethan was that Ethan was a friend to everyone, until you crossed him or outlived your usefulness. But Ethan had been a best friend to Cody, had grown up alongside him, and Cody had hoped that meant more. Apparently it hadn't. Maybe it never had. It wasn't like he could ask Ethan now. We need somewhere to go, Cody said, snapping out of his thoughts and back to the present. Where were you headed when we ran into each other? John shrugged his shoulders, looking noncommittal. South. South, okay, south is a start. Big city, cheap doctors, south. Cody trailed off and sat up a little straighter as an idea struck him. Vegas. If we get a head start on them, we could lose the Jedis in Vegas easy. It's full of people. Cody had only ever passed through Vegas a couple of times on bounty hunting jobs. It was a day's drive, maybe two days' worth if John wanted time to rest. But they'd make it with plenty of time to spare as long as they got a good head start of the Dead Eyes. And if they couldn't find a doctor willing to work for an IOU in Vegas, or something happened to slow them down on the road, well, that was a problem they'd deal with when they came to it. John shrugged again. Cody got the feeling he'd never been very far from home, especially if he hadn't set out from Pith with any particular destination in mind. Where's Vegas? John asked, only confirming the thought. South, Cody said. Well, southeast, in Nevada. I'll navigate, but there's a map in my bag. I can mark out a route for you. If we head out now, the dead eyes will probably be a day behind us. Maybe more. John nodded thoughtfully. His expression was hard to read, but he seemed like he liked the plan. Okay, he said. Show me the map. Boss. Marguerite lingered in the hallway, one hand resting on the frame of the door. In the dim light, she didn't look too beat up. The bandages covering the road rash on her arm and the scrape along her cheek hid the worst of it. Yeah, Mar, Ethan said, but didn't invite her in. He was lying on the old couch he'd taken for his bed, one leg crossed over the other, back propped against one of the arms. His jacket was still on. So was the grease paint in a black stripe across his eyes. He'd have to wipe it away before he fell asleep, but he was still far from tired. Gang wants to know what our next move is, Marguerite said, staying in place, knowing better than to come into his room unasked. Are we giving up on Cody? Giving up? Ethan laughed. Not a hostile laugh, a friendly one, the same as he might laugh at any joke. The thought of giving up after they just managed to corner Cody was a joke, really. Why would they stop when they were already so close? We're not giving up, he said to make himself clear. We know they lost us at the turnoff into Pith, so we'll go down into Pith and we'll see what the people there know. I'll take Jody, KB, Angie, and Boyd down there tomorrow morning. You and the rest can come at sundown or the next morning. You think the bikes will be fixed by then? Marguerite sounded doubtful. They'd gotten almost as far as levering before realizing they should have run into Cody by then, that he'd tricked them somehow. So Ethan had given the order to head back south, to the convenience store where they'd found Cody and his friend, and pick up the Deadeyes who'd been taken out of commission in the firefight. From there, they'd all gone back to the safe house in Nevada, 
where Ethan had cut off Cody's fingers. Back where he'd started. Some of the dead eyes had needed their bikes towed, and some needed to see a doctor, but everyone had made it out alive. That was good. It still bordered on humiliating that a nearly catatonic Cody and some farmhand who barely knew how to drive a bike had gotten the better of him, but it would have been even worse if anyone had actually died. All the same, deaths or no, he was going to have to call Lady. He wasn't looking forward to it. The bike should be fine, he told Marguerite. Not much damage to any of them. If any still need work by tomorrow night, you can keep a couple people here to stay with them. We'll set up a rendezvous point between here and Pith. I've got a feeling Cody's going to try and dip down here again anyway. He knows Nevada better than he does Washington or California. Probably knows doctors around here, too, and he'll need one soon for those fingers. Okay, Marguerite said. There was nothing in her voice or expression to indicate that she really understood, but Ethan decided to give her the benefit of the doubt. I'll tell your crew to be ready by mid-morning tomorrow, and the rest will be ready by afternoon. That all? That's all, Ethan confirmed with a smile. You're a peach, Marguerite. Get some rest. Tell everyone else to, too. Big day tomorrow. Big day coaxing information out of the people of Pith. Maybe torturing some of them. Maybe burning it all to the ground. They didn't find what they were looking for. Marguerite returned his smile and turned to go, her boots making low, hollow sounds against the wooden floorboards as she left. Once the noises faded out of earshot, Ethan got up and crossed the room to shut the door. There was a little end table within reach of the couch, and on the end table sat a phone. Beige, unremarkable, numbers faded with use. Not something every building had, but something enough of them did, provided the owners paid their dues to whichever gang owned the phone lines around their parts. The Dead Eyes made a lot of money that way. Of course, Ethan probably paid just as much in Hemisphere dues. He wasn't feeling particularly sweet toward the organization at the moment. Hemisphere was nice when it meant being left your own business, not having to worry about bigger gangs elbowing you out of your territory, and carte blanche to travel through territory controlled by anyone Hemisphere sponsored. You could even dip into shared funds once in a while, which was great until the big boss wanted a return on her investment. Then the occasional report turned into weekly calls. Ethan stared at the phone a moment longer, then picked it up and punched in a number he knew by heart. The faded buttons of the keypad didn't matter. He barely had to look at them anyway. He talked over the operator, giving her the code for Lady's office before she could finish asking him where to direct his call. The line rang once, twice, a third time, before the call connected with a soft click. Hello? Lady asked. She never felt the need to clarify who she was over the phone. Anyone who had her number already knew who she was. Her voice was warm, patient, and a little husky, crackling with interference from the shoddy phone lines. Seethan, he said, as politely as he could manage. There was something about Lady that set his teeth on edge, though he'd never quite been able to place it. She had an undertone to whatever she said, a feeling of indulgence and manipulation under every word, like a mother suggesting a choice of two games and letting her child believe his pick was his own idea. From the Dead Eyes. I've got an update on that bounty hunter I'm chasing, the one who owes us money. Money you borrowed from Hemisphere, as I recall, Mr. Rouse, Lady said, her tone lilting slightly into amusement. Ethan's lip twitched. He hadn't thought that she'd forgotten, but he'd been hoping she wouldn't bring it up. Yeah, he said sullenly. Well, do continue. We found him in Nevada, knocked him around a little, Ethan said neglecting to mention that he'd cut off two of Cody's fingers. Some of the dead eyes had been disgusted by it, but he stood by the decision. No matter how far Cody ran, he'd still have those missing fingers to remind him who he belonged to. Told him he could work off some of his debt with an indenture to the gang, while we figured out how else he could repay us. But we turned our backs on him for a second, and... You lost him. Now Lady sounded less amused. He ran, Ethan confirmed. Got in his bike and made tracks. We caught up to him near the Oregon border. He has a friend with him now. Pretty good with a shotgun. Managed to damage some of our bikes, injure a few dead eyes. Lady was silent for a moment, as though absorbing the information, then spoke again. Her voice was still even, but there were shades of disappointment in it. It made Ethan bristle just as much as a real insult might have. Do you know where they are now? she asked. We've got an idea, Ethan replied. 
I'm pretty sure they're in Pith, or they were when we lost them, but that they'll try and come down through Nevada again. We'll start from there and try to track them. Good, Lady said. Just be smart about it. This has taken up too much time already. She sighed over the line, the bad connection turning the sound hostile. I'm very close to calling your debtor a loss, Ethan, and when that happens, you become the one responsible for his debt. It's nothing personal, but a loan from Hemisphere isn't free, especially not such a large one. Ethan clenched his teeth. Paying for Cody's mistake. That couldn't be allowed to happen. Okay, he said, hoping the tension in his voice didn't come through. Understood. Good night, Mr. Rouse. Good night, Ethan said but the line had already gone dead before he'd even drawn breath to speak. Song is written by Marn S. and Alyssa K. Read ahead at prairiesongserial.com. Follow us on Twitter at, at CorpseRevivers and at IMAJoyK. Support our Patreon at patreon.com slash cardzeropress. Thanks for listening.